James Bond and Friends, a podcast from MI6 HQ. I'm Paul Atkinson, your interim host, because James Bond and MI6 are going through some restructuring this week. <laughs> I'd like to introduce you to uh, Bill Koenig, James Page, David Lee, and AJ Chowdhury. Could you introduce yourselves, please? I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command. My name's AJ Chowdhury. I'm the co-author with Matthew Field of the 800-page biography, Some Kind of Hero, the remarkable story of the James Bond films. I'm the spokesperson for the James Bond International Fan Club. It's David Lee here. I run uh, thejamesbonddossier.com. I'm also author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond and currently enjoying a nicely chilled bottle of Foo Yuck. Uh, I'm James Page, co-founder of MI6 and MS6 Confidential, and this week I have been mostly supervising the mailing of our Pete Lamont Casino Royale special for American customers, and we take a little station break and hear from the great man himself. Hi, my name is Peter Lamont. I've just done some signing for uh, the new MI6 Confidential Special Edition number three for Casino Royale. And I hope all those who read it will enjoy as much as I enjoyed being involved with it. It was my final picture, as good as it comes. Enjoy. Thank you. This week we wanted to talk a little bit about the business of Bond, springboarding off the, the precarious and interesting news that Annapurna, who's one of uh, uh, Bond 25's distributors in the US, is going through what its, uh, its chief executive is calling a restructuring process and what the media is calling uh, preparations for bankruptcy. Bond has a long history with uh, shady studios and studios that are almost on the brink of bankruptcy, and that's why we called together AJ and Bill to remind us. <laughs> AJ, also, you made the point... Before we start recording, it's probably best to talk, talk a little bit in general terms about how films are made and the financing process behind them. So I'm going to hand over to you to let you um, lead us in this conversation. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, yes, it's an opportune moment. Just to clarify things, Annapurna is part owner of the distribution company. It's not the studio, and they're two separate things. So let's get our sort of apples in a row. The studio is MGM, effectively now and it's the product is distributed in North America by MGM partnering with Annapurna as trading as United Artists Releasing and internationally it's being distributed by Universal Pictures. Back in the day when James Bond films were, were produced by United Artists, United Artists distributed them around the world and in the UK and in the US and even had theatres. So things that the landscape has changed a lot. When we talk about a Bond film, it's actually a studio movie, which means it's owned by one of the big studios. Unfortunately, MGM is probably one of the weaker uh, studios at the moment. The lion's roar is less so these days. But basically, it means that studios borrow money from banks in the hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and they make a range of films of high budget, low budget, medium budget. So when you borrow money from a bank, you pay interest on it. So a bond film is allocated a sizable chunk of money and interest is payable on it. There's a great misconception that you start developing a movie and have as long as you want for it. You don't. You actually, with all movies, all studio movies, you go in as late as possible and you finish as early as possible because the, long, the shorter time that amount of money has been allocated to your product, the less interest you pay. So even if you had five years on a bond film, they don't necessarily always use five years because they're going to be paying interest on that money, which is allocated in different tranches. For example, initially, an outline of a screenplay or a setup would cost a few million dollars. Well, you're paying interest on that. So you don't do that willy-nilly. Studios borrow from banks and other financing sources. Sometimes there's also companies that co-finance with them. It depends movie by movie. As an example, Dr. No, the lion's share of the financing was a, was a big loan from Bank of America. But, you know, like I said, different finance sources. So with United Artists in particular, with the start of the Bond series, United Artists really didn't have studio facilities per se. It's not like you, you could take a tour of the United Artists studio because it didn't exist. It was basically, you know, they had offices in the main office was in New York and they had a California office and a, they had a London office. But um, anyway, they were the ones who organized the fi financing. What had happened was UA had a really grand history. It had been co-founded by, among others, Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith. 
but it ran into financial problems and got taken over by a group that included Robert Benjamin, Arthur Krim, and others. I remember when Albert R. Broccoli won his uh, Thalberg Award, he, he paid those guys a lot of, a big compliment in his acceptance speech. They're, they're the ones that finance it. UA, as I recall, they tended to be a bit more hands-off than other studios. So if you had a project, you might not get as much money out of United Artists, but you often had more autonomy. However, you know, the power of the purse string is powerful. UA, when in the 60s, kind of let Eon kind of, you know, let them kind of go. They exert a little more power in the uh, early 70s because it was David Picker who was running United Artists at, at that point who insisted on bringing Sean Connery back. So anyway, but that's uh, that, that's how... It's the, the long leash that Eon were given by United Artists. Is that indicative of the fact that they didn't have a studio a lot and they weren't breathing down their necks physically as well? It you, it, you know what? It probably contributed to that, you know, because they worked with a lot of independent producers. There was a, a company called the Mirish Company that made The Magnificent Seven, um, The Great Escape, and they, you know, made their movies through United Artists. Um, so, yeah, I mean, United Artists was like in the 60s was on a real winning streak. They had both prestige movies and popular movies. Uh, In the Heat of the Night was a UA film, for example. I remember one of the uh, documentaries on the home video, I think they it was David Picker who said that, you know, they would do a deal. It was, you know, our word was our bond, no pun intended. And, you know, in, in the case of, of, of Bond, they, you know, once they got Broccoli and Saltzman in the room, you know, they kept, you know, they pretty much kept them there until they hammered out a deal. Broccoli, I think, briefly went away to call Columbia, where he had done a number of movies, kind of give them one last chance. But there was no way Columbia was going to match what UA was going to provide. So so they did the deal with UA, and they were off and running. But then the 70s had, uh, things began to change in the 70s. For right now, I just want to keep, just sum up UA. So a lot of members of the Krim Benjamin group left. They UA got bought by an insurance conglomerate called Transamerica in 1967. And eventually Transamerica was kind of getting in their way and they'd had enough fighting with Transamerica. So they all left and a bunch of like the second stringers got promoted. And then the second stringers wanted to show that they, you know, were perfectly good movie executives. And they unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, decided to finance a movie called Heaven's Gate that was supposed to cost $10 million and ended up costing in excess of $40 million and was an enormous flop. And Transamerica had enough of the movie business and then they sold it to MGM. And there's been a whole series of MGM-related things to Bond ever since. Right. I mean, just to put the power of UA in context, in 1961, when they were doing Production Dot Snow, UA released 40 films in one year, which is amazing now when you consider Disney's considered to be the sausage machine these days. And they what, did, what, one a month? But they were pumping out. Um, UA did 10 in December 1961 alone. It's like one every couple of days of Christmas. Yeah. And the week of Christmas, I think they had like five out. I mean, it was... Blimey. Yeah. yeah. So they were a powerhouse, right, Bill? You know, when, when Cubby and Broccoli, uh, when Broccoli and Saltzman were negotiating with them back in the late, you know, before it started. West Side Story, that was another UA movie, I believe. Um, and it's it's funny because, you know, when you see these on TV, MGM's like taken off. If, if they're... A lot of UA movies didn't even have a logo in the 60s. It wasn't until like 67 that they consistently did. And, you know, so MGM's taken off a lot of them. So you see the MGM lion. But a lot of those movies you you see that are billed as MGM are actually UA films. It's a forgotten studio. It really shouldn't be. And and I actually, when they named this um, joint venture between MGM and Annapurna as United Artists Releasing, that was kind of like the last Bond-related development I thought that 
you know, to me was like genuinely good news. You couldn't pick this one apart. They brought back the United Artists name. Yeah, I, I, I was really happy with that news. It, it's just, uh, you know, it, it, it's nostalgia, but um, yeah. it's uh, it, it felt good. Yeah, they announced it on the 100th anniversary of the founding of United Artists. A nice little touch. Well, at some point, you know, the UA logo kind of fell into disrepute a little bit for, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And now maybe we're thinking uh, that it's the more prestige brand or it's certainly the brand that people don't have the same kind of stigma with if you compare it to MGM and the kind of experience that that's had since 2007, 2008, something like that, right? Uh, I'd say since the right. 80s. Since the right. 80s. <laughs> yeah, another one was Midnight Cowboy. That was released in 69. That was, you know, the 50th anniversary of UA. And, and, and when David Pickard did his memoirs, he talked about how in the 60s, you know, they had, they had the Bond movies extremely, you know, at their zenith of popularity. They had the Beatles movies, which didn't do as the same kind of business as Bond movies, but they were very inexpensive to make and as a result were extremely profitable. And in 65, they had a big flop called The Greatest Story Ever Told. It was, it was a biblical movie that came out after biblical movies had kind of ceased being popular. And it had cost a lot of money. Picker in his memoirs talked about it was like a big financial disaster, but UA was able to get by because they had Bond, they had the Beatles, and they had these other films. So they were able to absorb that body blow and, and carry on. Everybody had read the book by then anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, I don't want to get into too much. The, the problem with the, One of the problems with the greatest stories ever told, it's like one of the slowest movies ever made. It was like four hours. And it's like, you know, Ben-Hur was a long movie also, but it also had the chariot race. It had the the ships fighting at sea. You know, it had action sequences mixed. I mean, both are like very earnest, very sincere about their subject matter, but Ben-Hur has other stuff that got to move the the story. And fun fact, two Blofelds, right? Max von Sydow and Telly Savalas were in that movie. That's right. Right, and that's the movie where Telly Savalas first shaved his head to, to play Pontius Pilate, and then he just kept it shaved after that. I don't think I've seen a photo of him without well, with hair. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've seen a photo with him with hair either. Oh, I just Googled Telly Savalas with hair. There he is. Yes. That's what I was about yeah. to do. <laughs> I mean, he was already bald on top. Is he in Birdman of Alcatraz as well? And I think he's got hair there, hasn't he? It might be useful for people to understand how a studio film is financed generally. Um, generally, a studio borrows money from a bank uh, for a slate of movies of various budgets, and they borrow hundreds of millions of dollars to be allocated to various productions as and when the money is needed. They have big budget films, medium budget films, small budget films. So a bond film uh, would normally be allocated a sum of money to get it going. And back in the day, in the United Artists days, uh, United Artists has a big loan from the Bank of America, and back in the day, you'd have allocated a million dollars to Doctor No. Not, of course, all in one go, but in in tranches, breaking it down for screenplay development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you want to make it the post production as short as possible, so there's not a huge gap between when the film's made and when it's released. And when it's released, you want the film to make as much money as quickly as possible. Hence, you get large opening weekends. And that wide release was sort of half pioneered by Goldfinger when they wanted lots of movies to uh, lots of movies to earn money quickly as possible, recoup as they say, so that interest isn't payable. So that that sort of that's the debt financing. So another discussion is what happens with the money so a movie has a gross of x million dollars for example let's take a a billion dollars as a nice round number if a movie grosses at the theater a billion dollars the studio will get back approximately 45 percent of that because there are two other slices there's the distributor who will get approximately 35 percent and you'll get the exhibitor the theater who will get 20%. These are very rough figures, but to get people to understand the economics of what happens to a movie. So 
if you've spent $250 million on a movie and you gross a billion, you're going to get $450 million back from the theatre. The distributor will take their 30%, the, the, the exhibitor, the theatre will get 20%. So on a $250 million picture, if you've earned $450 million, it looks to be a clear $200 million profit. Unfortunately, that's not right because the when we normally talk about a budget of a movie and a budget is a very nebulous concept, um, we only talk about the negative, the cost it actually takes to make the movie. It doesn't usually include the cost of marketing the movie, which is a hidden sum on top. And it usually is about the budget of the movie again. So you're talking about a, a $250 million movie may take $250 million in cost to release, which sort of means that you've made a loss on your $450 million profit, plus there's interest payable on that. Now, normally what happens, and the Bond films have pioneered this, the actual budget of the movie is rarely, you rarely actually spend $250 million. You actually get things like uh, tax incentives to film in territories, facilities will give you tax incentives, and you'll get product placement, which will provide the production value to a movie without cost. So your actual cash budget of a $250 million, I'm not going to speculate as to what it could be, but it could be significantly less. And here's the trick. You actually get a, a tax rebate or the tax, the incentives are calculated on the worth of the movie. So not what you actually spend, but what it would, what it would have been worth. Um, this this encourages people to make movies, keeps the art alive, and keeps the soft power of IP and culture alive. So that's why countries and facilities do it. It happens very much in Europe, all countries, and even in America, they want to uh, get states to um, uh, get get people to film there. So it's an important thing. So of your $250 million, you're not actually spending that. Similarly, with product placement, they're using their money to advertise the movie. GoldenEye pioneered this, in fact, where they got people who are providing product placement to advertise the movie as well, thus offsetting the cost of releasing the movie. So your our total expenditure of $450 million is greatly reduced, helping profitability. So these, these figures and these types of ideas happen with all movies, big or small, when they're studio made. So it gives people... Could I just a, uh, interrupt and ask a question? Sure. I, this is something I, I, I'm, I'm not clear about. Right, I, I get, the, I get, I get the, the fact that the, you know, the, the budget is, say, 200 250, 250 million, and that their you know countries uh, will give you know million, you know Norway's given what five million yeah. something or others euros or kroners or, or something to 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 bond twenty five, and you know that's that's fairly typical these days. And Heineken and uh, Aston Martin and uh, are, are providing uh, uh, either payments or I, I don't know if Aston actually provide payment or whether they just provide the cars, but. You, you said something after that, which I, I can't quite get my, my mind around. I'm not, I like to, to understand that more. You're like most people in the film industry. They can't get their mind around it either. I'd, I'd, I'd just love to love to know uh, a bit more about what that is. I, 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 I don't I don't remember exactly what you said. You, you, you were talking about the you were talking about the incentives and, and the um, product placements, and then afterwards you, you said something, and you completely lost me. Oh, about. About the worth of the movie versus the actual hard cost of the movie. Yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So, supposing I have a movie, supposing I shoot in Rome, and I've got a big car chase sequence there that will cost $30 million. So my spend in Rome is $30 million, right? I would get a rebate on the value of $30 million. So I've spent $30 million, and I'll get a rebate for say forty percent, uh, let's call it for maths. Let's call it thirty a third. So I get ten million dollars back in rebate. With, with with die another day, Ford Motor Company was the primary vehicle supplier. They owned Aston Martin at the time. They owned Land Rover at the time, and they also owned Volvo. So anyway, you see all those vehicles, and then Ford Motor bought ads promoting die another day when it was coming out in theaters. So those ads were, were that was money that uh, MGM didn't have to spend to promote Bond 20, or to promote Die Another Day. 
Right. And I think there was an interview, there was an interview, I think, at the time of Skyfall and Barbara Broccoli confirmed to the press that Heineken weren't paying anything towards the film to be associated with it, but they had a contractual okay. commitment to spend a certain amount on marketing. Yes. And, and Michael Wilson's gone on record as saying that they don't get money per se for the movie, which is true, technically. They get money's worth. And by the way, this happens with studios. It's akin to barter. Yes, exactly. And uh, now it also happens with studio facilities, post-production facilities. I've been involved with lots of movies that seemingly pay for X, Y, Z, but are getting it as Bill says on barter. But the key thing is to understand that the you get your rebate on the money's worth that you've spent. So you get your rebate on $30 million, even though you've only spent, say, 15 or $20 million. Okay, that, that, that's part of what I don't get. So your tax, your, ta- your, tax, your tax rebate's based on what you would have had to spend had you done it all by yourself. Right, okay. The, the, net, the net worth versus what your hard costs okay, okay. actually yes, were. exactly. Okay. Now, and the reason why, but, and, and you're right, this, this, lots, lots of people uh, uh, scratch their heads. The reason why is effectively you're attracting film investment into an area. You're getting people to film there, which has not only the cost that you spend there, but also the soft cost of rehabilitating the infrastructure, the area, the tourism. So, for example, in Mexico, when the when Spectre shoots there, they fake and spend a lot of money on the Day of the Dead festival, which never took takes place there. The next year, they actually have a Day of the Dead festival, which must have which brings in a lot of income to the city and will probably always will. We need to look at James Bond Island or Piz Gloria for great examples of that. And the country benefits in the medium to long term. So here's, here's a question I often see floating around forums and stuff, which is Eon must have made a lot of money over the years, yes. right? Um, whether through the company or personal yes. wealth. Why couldn't they, I mean, this is, okay, this is layman on the street. Why couldn't they just self-finance? Right. Nobody in the history of movies generally ever self-finances movies, okay? You don't. You, they could fund the seed money for development of movies. Generally, no one, in the, no one at studio-level filmmaking funds their own movies. There have been very, very few examples of that. You just don't do it. You don't do it with music. You don't do it with theatre. I know it seems a very basic thing that why can't, if, you've got, if you're richer than than God, why don't you finance the movies? Well, the answer is this. Firstly, they co-own the movies currently with the studio, with MGM. So they're not, they don't own it to start it, okay? That's the first thing. Secondly, the general rule of all entertainment is you don't finance it yourself, even if you've got the money. There's an old adage, how do you become a millionaire in the movie industry? And the answer is you start as a billionaire. So all art, from a theatre production to music, is rarely self-financed. On the odd occasion, it would be, but generally it's not. And I'm sure Barbara Ockley and Michael Wilson could financially service it, but you tend not to. It's just not done. Um, Very few examples of this have happened. I think Lucasfilm uh, for Return of the Jedi financed the movie. But George Lucas was going to run out of money when, um, sorry, not Return Jedi, Empire Strikes Back. George Lucas was going to run out of money. It's very, very expensive, as we've seen, to mount a movie. And why would you when other people are going to fund it? Because then you don't don't have to pay interest. You don't have to pay interest. Yeah, exactly. But George Lucas ended up borrowing money from banks to finance the movie. So it's just it's just how move, it's grown up movie making is made. Very few people ever put their hands in, and Eon don't need to. Don't, Michael and Barbara don't need to. Uh, in fact, uh, as we'll go on, we'll see that despite uh, there were reports of Sony saying they don't get much profit from a bomb movie, when the distribution came up again, every studio in Hollywood wanted to get a piece of the Bond action. Um, in fact, one studio even built a replica set to have the meeting in to try and land the deal. So Bond is seen, not only is it seen as very lucrative in all sorts of ways, uh, I, I, didn't, I, I don't think I explained before that when you make money, when we talked about the billion dollars revenue in theatrical, that money only represents probably a third of what a movie will make. So 
it will make approximately the turnover of a Bond movie is three billion in all sorts of ancillary and immediate rights and licensing. So it's a big business. A big, a big movie is a hugely successful thing, and a studio wants a piece of that. Okay, so here's a question then. Why United Artists when 1961 rolls around and Cubby and Harry are trying to get their film financed? What is it about UA that makes them approach them? What is it about the UA that makes them take the plunge with Eon? In 1961, when Cubby and Harry approach with Dan Jack, United Artists, it's the second time they approach a studio. Cubby, in 1952, had relocated to the UK to form with Irving Allen Warwick Productions and had produced for 10 years successful, solid movies for Columbia, and he had a relationship with them. Harry Saltzman had produced the Angry Young Man pictures, the British Kitchen Sink movies, but which had less of a sort of commercial track record and, and budgetary things. So Cubby offers his friend Mike Frankovich at Columbia the Bond films and is turned down in a move similar to when Decker turned down the Beatles. And then he goes across the floor and meets uh, Arthur Krim, the co-head of United Artists then, who Cubby had worked with in the 40s and offers the Bond film to the board of United Artists. And David Picker and his uh, uncle, I think Arnold Picker, were Bond fans and uh, liked the idea. And they said, yeah, great, we'll do it. So, And there's a story that we, we tell in Some Kind of Hero that Arnold Picker was a, a Democrat a voter and was close to President Kennedy and knew that Kennedy liked the bomb books in 1961, it had been announced. So he was sort of pre-sold on that. So it, all, it was a fait accompli. So they just said, yes. I mean, the other argument is that they said, well, we'll only lose a million dollars. So that's what happens. And remember, the bomb books, the Ian Fleming bomb books were huge business at the time. It, they weren't just unknown books. They were the Harry Potter books of their day, the John Grisham books, the Jack Reacher books of their day. So it was a, it was a big thing to land the bomb films. So they have a multi-picture contract, and that's why that happens. It's not what you know, it's who you know then, eh? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I think that initial deal was for six films, if I remember right. That's right. Yeah. A picture a year. Here's a question then. How, in an alternate universe, Columbia got the deal, how do we think it would have shaken out? I think, actually... Columbia was one of the big five back at the time. They were. They were. I I don't think Columbia was willing to invest as much in Dr. No as United Artists was. They thought it was worth maybe a $400,000 budget, something like that. I think we've got a smaller movie. Who knows what would have happened? Also, Columbia had Columbia had its own studio and its own people, whereas United Artists didn't have a studio space and an overhead. So they were used to producing European movies with independent producers. The Mirish Corporation, the Spaghetti Westerns were all United Artists. Culturally, I think there was more freedom under United Artists than there may have been at Columbia, but who knows? Was the million-dollar budget acceptable to Harry and Cubby at the time, or were they batting for it more? It was acceptable. The problem was there were like some costs that uh, yeah. Ken Adam was like going through the um, what it would the sets. It's like, uh, and he writes a note to Harry. Uh, Harry is going to cost more, and Harry didn't bother to tell Film Finances, which is the company that issued the completion bond. And then when they found out later, and they got a hold of that memo. They hit the roof. It's like, what? And that was one reason why Film Finances took control of the film in post-production. No creative changes, but basically they took, you know, there was like, they were supposed to do like two days worth of like insert shots to finish up sequences and Film Finances said, no, you just need one. And so they took one. That million dollar figure was kind of a little dicey, actually. Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly, 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 Bill. I mean, and 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 also, film studios always want them to spend less. You know, there was a wonderful line Sam Mendes used at the press used at the press conference, or either Skyfall or Spectre. He says, "This is a 007 stage where budgets go to die." about film finances uh, taking over Dr. No and it's all documented wonderfully in a great book called A Bond for Bond by Charles Drazen, a privately published book I'd 
uh, urge everyone to get it. Um, a bond means it's a completion bond, and that effectively is an insurance guarantee that producers or studios take out to ensure that if there's a disaster or if there's a problem, the movie will actually get finished. Because a movie as an asset is worth zero if it's 85% complete. A movie has to be 100% complete to be releasable to have any value. So studios or completion bond companies are put there in case an actor dies, in case there's bad weather, things go terribly over budget. The completion bond company can step in and take over from filmmakers and ensure the film is done profitably and on time. And that's what usually happens. And that's what technically happened in Doctor No. Um, and Cubby Broccoli famously tells Ken Adam when the completion bond company are coming round to go and hide because Ken Adam was usually blamed for the budget overruns. But that's the whole background to what a bond company does. One of the tensions between Eon and film finances was you know, the film finances money is supposed to be kind of a last resort, kind of contingency money, whereupon Harry Saltzman was kind of using it as just another pot of money to be spent. Yeah. And that was, I mean, like I said, that was part of the tension. Producers will always think money is being overspent. And directors or artists will usually say, uh, oh, gosh, you know, they're, they're nickel and diming us. What about our art? I mean, essentially, movie making is the kind of nexus of art and commerce. I mean, it's the ultimate show business, and that's what you get there. Uh, there's no objective truth about it. Many films go massively over budget. Titanic is a great example, and ends up becoming the most successful film of all time. Well, it, that depends on how you define success, but yeah. Well, for, in terms of <laughs> yeah. what we're talking about, financially remunerative. But yes, I, I take your point. You know, but you know that is, this is this is the this is a constant tension. It's happened since the dawn of time, and it will always happen. And also because generally this stuff isn't talked about much. How films are financed, the bank loans, interest generally isn't out there, so people don't really understand the, these ideas generally because it's too complicated and quite too boring for people to to ascertain so the reporter we're, we're helped and aided by fake news a lot of the time where they put a spin on something for it you know uh, and people don't quite get the understanding of it so but that's a, and what we've said here is a very very basic right. example i'm sure there are lots of people slapping their heads and go oh no the percentage but generally it's a broad primer what bill and i are saying is sort Do you of think generally correct Cynically, um, AJ, do you think it's in the studio's interest to keep this opaque, as Pierce Brosnan would say? Because the studio system has been criticized for many a year. In fact, I think Harry, the first Harry Potter movie still has made a profit, according to Warner Brothers. Um, that if they keep all this accounting vague, then they often get away with not necessarily sharing the profits accurately. Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I'd say all finances is usually opaque and movie financing is particularly opaque. And yes, it's in their interest to keep it opaque. But you will find that all filmmakers, actors, people of significance have their people to make sure it's not opaque. So oftentimes people audit accounts, people find the money and it's there. But yes, generally there's something called movie star accounting. But also you have to understand the, incre the massive cost it takes to make a movie. Usually a fil one film, one hit film, and this is, by the way, applies to theatre, music, publishing. One hit book pays for 100 failures. So unfortunately, it is, it is a hugely expensive business to be in. So, but yes, cynically, you can say that, and lots of people will say that. On the other hand, um, someone's got to invest money in something where, as the famous screenwriter said, William Goldman said, nobody knows anything. If you knew you could write a hit movie or a hit song, you'd do it. But it, it, no one actually knows. It's like when, when a company requests a marketing department to create them a viral video. It's like, it's not how that works. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it's it's true in all business, all product. Tom Mankiewicz you know. told an anecdote about his father, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Joseph Mankiewicz directed Cleopatra, which was this enormously expensive movie. Basically, 20th Century Fox basically shut everything down for a time while it was filming Cleopatra. And the story that Tom Mankiewicz told was he was at lunch with his father and 
or he was talking to his father and his father said something like right now there's a 20th century fox guy taking his mistress to dinner and he's charging it against my movie because all this overhead is getting charged against you know cleopatra it's the only thing going at yeah. 20th century fox at the time right so that's the only expense code they had, along with like Richard Burton's bar tab. Yeah. I mean, James, exactly. You make a great point there about an expense code. So for all these hundreds of millions sloshing around, each film, each production is allocated an expense code. So the money is sort of channeled in various ways, and and interest is divided, uh, is is charged accordingly. So a bond film is one expense code amongst many that MGM are dealing with. And probably lots of things are being accrued because a Bond film is probably their most cherished asset on that. So um, a, lot of the, a lot of the fate of a studio depends on the Bond film, I would suggest. The next question I sort of had in my mind is following chronologically along, what was sort of the high point of the United Artists' relationship with E.ON and sort of when did things start to get a bit rocky in terms of being able to regularly produce Bond films? Like we get one every other year, we we'll get one a year for a short amount of time and then we get one every other year and then it starts to sort of trickling off. Is that rate of return, as it were, attributable to uh, UA's financial situation and the relationship between the production company and the financiers? I think throughout the 60s it was a pretty strong relationship. I think the Bond movies began becoming more complicated to film. I mean, by the time of You Only Live Twice, they're spending a, you know, they're spending a million dollars on that crater set. So I think it simply took more time but the money was rolling in, so UA was mostly happy. I think I think UA, David Picker said in his memoirs, when suddenly Connor is like quitting the role that they could, you know, he claimed that UA was totally unaware, he, you know, how unhappy Connery was with Broccoli and Saltzman. And it's like, so that was probably the first kind of strain um, in that relationship. Uh, I, I, Bill, Bill, I know David Picker says that, but I think it's slightly disingenuous because Connery's dissatisfaction was all over the trades in 1965. And I think now it sounds good to say that. UA also had veto on who could play Bond. So I think that's slightly disingenuous. I think they also thought, they backed their producers, thought, well, anyone could play Bond. And I think that that now seems a little bit like hindsight. But at the time, I find it almost impossible. I know he said that, but I think in the press and trades, Connery's... That was all sort of over a... Yeah, no, I know. So I don't... And creative differences or, you know, something like that are not necessarily over, um, you know, some of the bigger bigger line items. So I suppose UA might have pegged their hopes to the fact that Connery would be Bond for another... success as many authors yeah no but i think i think creatively ua were pretty hands-off with the bond movies and in fact the studios still are from what i understand they basically leave uh dan jack and eon to produce them autonomously they have notes they're involved but actually they're given quite a free hand the uh, dan jack and eon have a lot of power i think uh, for better or for worse, I think I think the main problem happened when Harry Saltzman and his share is bought by United Artists, and that's when you got co-corporate ownership of the Bond franchise. And at the time, I don't think that's a problem, but that causes problems later on when UA get into financial difficulties, and those echo to this day with Sony and now the current distributor problem. Maybe jumping ahead, maybe out of sequence. Um, I know MGM, especially in the '90s, they had very, they had veto on casting, right? So that's why we ended up with like Terry Hatcher and stuff being cast. Um, if MGM's fifty percent, if MGM were to get acquired again, or they sell their stake in Bond or whatever to another studio or corporate owner, because let's be honest, most of the entertainment business is now owned by telecoms and stuff um, or IP companies the relationship with Eon would change, right, with the new owner. And maybe the thing to fear is that creative freedom could get lost, right, if we had another, a different owner of the other 50%. It depends if you're a half-glass empty, half-glass full person. For example, effectively, the corporate culture has changed many times at MGM, with Sony, and now here, I think you're going to find that there almost certainly will be a clause in whoever buys MGM that 
Dan Jack have a what's called a change of ownership clause. They can control the tail can wag the dog. I have a feeling the bond company is so big and so important that they will right. have a say. They they can't stop it. But the way things they do are pretty ring fenced. If you read, there's a great book by Peter Bart, a, a famous, uh, sh- uh, he's still around in, in LA. He he headed MGM at one point, and he talks about what the studio could and could not do with uh, uh, the Bond franchise. And I have a feeling you'll find, again, in our book, Some Kind Hero, we spoke to studio executives at UA and at MGM and at Sony that there was they have insight and they have advice. There's a limit to what they can actually force through. I also want to say, generally, it's not as adversarial as we think. There is a creative partnership. Executives are not these sort of suit-wearing numbskulls. There is a very broadly creatively interesting dynamic so it's not us versus them it's very much a partnership sometimes it's lost in the corporate thing but it's not this idea that all studios are ignoramuses in suits only looking at the bottom line is completely false especially at a company like mgm where we can see they often have some good points and some bad points and that's that's the compromise there aj what do you think is the likelihood that someone will just get a big enough checkbook that they not only buy out MGM, but they also buy out Dan Jack. I mean, to me, if you really wanted to get control of the thing, you you would have to like buy them both and just, that would simplify life. Post, yep. you know, how likely yep. is that? Bill, none of us know, and it's a great question. Um, I've been told by various Bond people since 2002, that's what's going to happen. Here's my theory. I don't know. I have no connection at all with the Bond people at all. Here's my theory. I think basically the Bond producers like making Bond films because it's a guaranteed success. Without the almost guaranteed financial and creative success of a Bond film, they probably couldn't do all their other things that they do from theatrical productions to TV to other movies. I think the reason they can get those made is because they're doing the Bond pictures. And I think also the Bond pictures, especially the way they've been made in the last few years, they've really taken it out for a spin. So now the creatives can work with Oscar-winning actresses, can work with Oscar-winning writers. They're using the Bond vehicle to stretch and to artistically challenge themselves. So I'm not so sure Barbara Broccoli or Michael Wilson have any sense that they don't want to do it anymore. And I think Greg Wilson is probably taking over, and there's there's a lot of the concession. I think it is a family business. I don't think they're making these films under sufferance. No doubt it's harder. No doubt it's more challenging. No doubt in the marketplace, uh, it, you know, it, it's it's a unique phenomenon, though, because we're talking about it over 50 years later, and it's still an important franchise. It still opens doors. Michael Wilson talks about how being a producer of a Bond film, you know, he, he realizes how lucky he is. He could be a, an, a cancer-curing doctor or a physicist or a scientist, but really he's producing entertainment. But as he travels around the world, as he visits countries, he realizes how important it is. So there is some value in doing this. So I think artistically getting something. But Bill, you're right. If the check is big enough, tomorrow they could all sell. But I think there's something more to it than just money. They're, getting, they're deriving creative and artistic and social pressure and privilege from doing bonds. Yeah, the other angle to that is they couldn't spend the money in the time they have left anyway, <laughs> being realistic, right? Yeah, So exactly. There's, I'm there's sure no, that... The, what, what is the value in them selling it? Exactly, uh, exactly. And I lean towards the actual evidence of them actually... When they get to make a Bond film as trying this, they actually have their heart and spirit and soul into it. After all, after after Die Another Day, they could have carried on as normal. Or whether we like the creative choices they've done, undoubtedly they've stretched the formula, they've broken it up, they've reversed it, they've, they've taken huge risks with something that previously they hadn't taken huge risks with. So I think there's an element of them stretching artistically what they want from Bond and also spreading their wings as well. So I think Bond is ultimately a good thing that they're involved in all sorts of things other than just filmmaking, theatrical productions they're involved in, interns and bringing on the next generation of filmmakers. So it's a, it's a, there is a, there's a bigger picture than we see when the Bond film comes out. 
Yeah, I think I think a parallel would be George Lucas, right? Because Disney gave him four billion dollars to basically hand over Star Wars, yeah. and he did come out yeah. and say that he was going to invest that money in programs and schools and whatever else. Some critics have pointed out that that hasn't happened yet, and it's been quite a while. <laughs> He's still got his four billion dollars in the bank. Um, Hopefully, not on the bank. <laughs> well, it's not under his bed. It's definitely not under his bed. So. <laughs> I think they they used to, they used to call that noblesse oblige. Noblesse oblige, yes. Well, I, I think that's the obligation of anybody who makes uh, serious money, and unfortunately, it doesn't happen uh, often enough. That uh, if you are making, uh, you know, I, I I don't begrudge people for making money. Uh, far from it. And uh, but if you've got if, if you've got that amount of money where there's no hope of you um, ever going short, if you've if you've got that in in your bank or in your uh, well wherever it's invested. Um, you, you need to um, invest it in, well, basically humanity. Well, it's interesting that we talk about Star Wars because today in the press, uh, one of the trades pointed out, um, they did an article about how um, Disney has a problem with Star Wars. They are not attracting the new generation of fans to the numbers they want. Revenues at the parks are down, despite them spending so much money on them. Um, the last film relatively tanked. Um, and everything's hinging on the next one. Uh, and merchandise sales are down too. They need to do a partnership with Funko Pop, don't they? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if you're thinking about Bond staying in the creative control of the owners, uh, of the people, you know, the family, I think the sale of Star Wars to Disney is probably helping that argument of what could go wrong if a big corporate owner comes in and just swoops it up and just milks it and overexposes it. I'm not. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Yes, and if you grew up with the with the franchise as a family property, then you're much less likely to think, "Oh, you know, I can, I can flick this on for a quick profit." You know, if you're Barbara or Michael or Greg, you you don't. If you if you want to flip the whole conversation in, into um, uh, a different medium, which is music, I can't stand basically any of the major labels. I think they're bloody useless. They haven't. They, they they basically don't do anything for the artists, and so you've got to go to the independents. But uh, in in movies, the independent the independent studios seem to be struggling. And so it doesn't seem like many of them are going to make it. But then uh, what's going to happen to the majors as well? They're not going to make it either. Just And, and taking it back to movies for a bit, um, you know, Disney has had success with Marvel. But what they did with Marvel was they kept the creative personnel. Whereupon with Star Wars, they kind of brushed George Lucas aside and put in their own people. Also with Marvel, you had decades of characters developed in the comic books and I don't want to say Star Wars has a small cast, but it's kind of more limited compared to like all those characters, you know, that that are in the Marvel Reserve. Right, so we move on to some contemporary stuff that's tangential to Bond Twenty Five, and should we be worried about? Should, should we be worried about the kind of the restructuring that's going on at Annapurna? And they are a small cog in a bigger machine. But what, what's your analysis of that, AJ? Megan Ellison, who runs Annapurna, is is the daughter of billionaire Larry Ellison, who's the Oracle founder, has come up with some calming speech saying she's in it for the long term and don't believe all the bad reporting, etc. Who knows what to? You could be cynical and say that reporters are finding story and twisting it. Or, or what else was she going to say? Well, supposing it's not true. Oftentimes pe- people, after all, for example, this bankruptcy or this pre-structuring isn't going to suddenly stop all the production, is it? They're not going to pull out of deals. And arguably, supposing they were in, and let's assume they are in some financial thing, the light at the end of the tunnel is Bond 25. The financial, for Annapurna, that's got to be almost guaranteed uh, set of money. So if I'm the daughter of a billionaire, I would keep my company going in for less than the 12 months it will take to release arguably one of the biggest assets it's going to come to. That's in, in the trade. That's what's known as a non-denial denial. 
because what was reported was that Annapurna is preparing, exploring bankruptcy, whatever. In her statement, she said nothing that like, oh, that's not true. She just kind of said those mean old, the mean old press without actually refuting the actual thing that was reported. It was the first non-denial denial was popularized during Watergate because the Nixon administration had this habit of not actually denying what was being reported. So, Right. Yeah. The thing I wanted to point out, I wasn't too explicit in our news coverage of it, but was, was because if you know how banks work and you're in business, basically the banks that Annapurna owes money to are the same banks that have billion dollar credit lines with her dad. So they can't really do what they would normally do, which was basically you're going into liquidation. We're going to get as much as we can out of you. They're walking and I'm sure she's aware of this. They're not going to treat them harshly at all because they don't want to lose the bigger client, right? Which is Larry. So smart move for them to borrow money from the same people that have credit lines with the big boys. Let's take let's take that example. Supposing they did want to be ruthless with a company. You also have arrangements like I agree it's a non denial denial, but it's also financially uh, it's a financially it's market sensitive to talk about is a bankruptcy is a very definite thing there are many things other than bankruptcy let's assume there's financial restructuring going on one of the things you're going to do is say let's get the bond movie out because that's going to be make a huge impact on our finances and, and just as it relates to bond 25 um if they do go into bankruptcy i think the effects on bond 25 will probably be limited because I would see one of two outcomes. Either MGM bites the bullet and simply buys them out of United Artists releasing. Um, hey, it was nice doing business with you, and here's a check, and please go away. Or Universal picks up the uh, U.S. distribution. I, I, I don't yeah. feel like having to search for a whole new yeah. distribution deal or anything like that. I, I think that's right. I think that's right, Bill. I think that's a very good assessment. I think if you're sitting at Universal right yeah. now, you're probably like, yeah. bring it on. Well, with, with all that sage uh, advice, the only thing I've got to contribute to this conversation is that every time I read Annapurna, I read uh, Anna Purina, and Purina's a, a pet food. <laughs> David's pedigree chums. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe this is. is some psychic thing about the the key branch um, it being trademarked by by Eon. Key branch cat food. When MGM were courting <laughs> distributors, they were looking at much bigger players. So the allocation of Annapurna came as a bit of a surprise to everyone because it was a newbie in the game, and maybe this is part of the the pain of having it or taking a risk on a newbie. Oh yeah, it was, it was also MGM's way of keeping more exactly. of the distribution. Exactly. Money, right. The fact that there were were even talking about Annapurna kind of indicates MGM's general weakness in that when they came out of bankruptcy themselves in 2010, they had no distribution operation. So then they had to cut deals with different studios to release their films. You know, as this, you know, Studio A would release this and Studio B would release this, etc., etc. So the fact that if MGM were stronger and had its own distribution, we wouldn't even be talking about Annapurna at all. Exactly, exactly. But of course, we do know what's going to happen. And I think we can have an MI6 exclusive that Disney are buying Bond and Bond will form part of the Marvel combined universe <laughs> and uh, Bond will be right. with one of the Avengers. I think it was Just great. Just hand it to George. And uh, it's going to be amazing. That's right. George could buy it. He's got the money. I'm looking forward to Ewoks and Bond 25. He's not putting it, uh, allegedly, he's not putting in that yeah, educational fund he promised. So he's still got the cash. Well, may maybe they'll read. Maybe they'll maybe they'll recut Moonraker and put X-wing fighters in yeah, it as well. Uh, you need to ask Calvin if that's a good idea. Moonraker, the expanded edition. Looking forward to the despecialized dine of the day, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Based on what you said, AJ, it'd be more funny if through yeah. So here's the thing: I I didn't realize until I was digging around that Annapurna story that her you know like her brother, David Ellison. Yeah run Skydance yep. and I hadn't put those two yep. things together for some whatever reason and of course Skydance does Mission so Impossible there you go. you'll often see you'll, of, you'll often see these days that studio pictures having equity investors you get legendary you get other people they're offsetting their risk as well so you, you'll see lots of these companies there and they're just getting into the, there's lots of money sloshing around they want to get into the movie making game and that, that's part of it so 
I just think it's funny. The, the, the sibling rivalry of the daughter has Bond and the son it's has impossible. Ethan Hunt. There yeah. we go. I once saw this parody of a movie trailer, and it begins with big studio logo, and then comes on smaller company logo, <laughs> and then <laughs> and then you like break it down with a catchphrase, and people just say catchphrase. I, I remember, Bill, when I, I saw Blade Runner back in 82 or whenever it was, and um, the I, I, there are a load of different um, companies involved with that, but um, it's like this this studio, that studio, and then it's, it's so run runs short, and the whole uh, the whole cinema burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've inadvertently tapped into a Bond connection with Sir Run Run Shaw. Tom Mankiewicz says that Run Run Shaw was the um, inspiration for the high-fat character in The Man with the Golden Gun. Okay. And in the original screenplay, Sir Run, uh, he, he's called something else, but he owns a film studio and they're making kung fu movies and all sorts of things like that. And that was the inspiration for High Fat, this, this, this uh, very famous, who died very recently, actually. Uh, Hong Kong film producer. Okay, I, no, I, I, I had no idea about that. Uh, and you, yep. you get a bonus for mentioning the man with the golden gun, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite James Bond film. I'm happy to talk about that. <laughs> is it? Is it your favourite? <laughs> I think it's a very <laughs> underrated Bond movie. I think it's a terrific eco thriller. You know, I also like I also like Die Another Day and Quantum of Solace. Eco. Did you say eco thriller? That's what That's I call it. Yeah. Something. Uh, <laughs> you, you guys need to catch up. You guys need to catch up. The renaissance of the man with the golden gun. I can imagine. No, no, I, 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 I do, I do like the man with the golden gun. But of course, it, I like them all in there. Well, I like Die Another Day. I, I, I like them all in parts. So. Uh... And and, and 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 quantum and solace. Yeah. Uh, I, I think maybe we've talked about this before, but quantum and solace uh, has definitely uh, uh, elevated in its uh, from my from my initial assessment, yeah. which uh, I, I I really really like it now. Really really good film. It, it's a grower, isn't it? Yeah, it's a grower. Yeah, I think they all have their value, but you know, sometimes it's also your mood. It's a grower, not exactly. A shower. It, it, sometimes it's your mood. Sometimes you fancy watching a man with the golden gun. Fancy, sometimes you fancy watching, I don't know, Spectre. <laughs> I had, I had, I had that this morning, guys, because I was looking for the Christopher Walken memes about the power. Oh, cut, I you see, know, right. Power, and then I was like, I really want to watch a video kill right now. Okay. You know what you got to do? You got to watch Bond films at the cinema, or watch them with people who haven't seen them before. Kids as well. You see them with all new eyes. It's really good fun. Or the other thing is just um, if you if you've got the television on and watching actually watching something that's being broadcast, just uh, letting it letting it play. I yeah. I, I once it was like a, a Saturday afternoon. I was just lying on the sofa, and Doctor Doctor No came on, and I and. Um, you know, live in Spain, and they don't play them that often. And I had no idea it was coming on. And but I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll just watch this. And I was watching it, and uh, we got to the bit where the tarantula is crawling up up Bond's arm, and we had a, a black cat at the time, and he never took any interest in the television except that day, and his eyes just opened up. Completely, and he went up closer to the screen to watch the tarantula. It was fantastic, <laughs> David. That's splendid. You've got your cat as a Bond fan. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. well, uh, that cat is no longer with us, unfortunately. But we've got a, another couple of cats and got a dog uh, who I still haven't converted. But uh, this time, how does he feel about the elephant and the golden gun? <laughs> Yeah, I'll I mean, ask. We talked about children in Bond films, but there seems to be more animals than children. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole. That's a whole other podcast. There's a lot more animals. Well, uh, Fleming, Fleming actually was uh, to, to completely go off topic. Fleming was quite uh, pro animal. He, he didn't like hunting, for example, and uh, so yes. there's a bit in uh, the short story. 
the Hilda the Hildebrand rarity, uh, which was uh, based on something he'd experienced, where the scientists were that they poisoned the water to to capture uh, to, to, to capture fish, fish basically, and uh, and he he hated it. He hated it, and there's yeah you know, there there are a lot of lot of people criticize Fleming's writing, and a lot of people just. Uh, simply underestimate it but there's a lot of stuff in there which is quite important i think that's right and fleming's scottish family owned hunting grounds in 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 scotland and he used to moan about going up there to catch no fish and kill no shoot no birds yeah yeah, that's that's i don't think he was a fan of it bill managed to slip some conversation about uh, a goat into the last episode which i I got some um some positive feedback on twitter (laughs) what fleming in in um, in Goldeneye, his cook, who, who I believe was called Violet, she, she used to cook goat curry curry very often, which uh, I, I believe it is or was quite typical in the 1950s. And, and Noel Coward hated it. But I can tell you right now, David, I, I ate a lot of goat curry yeah. in Canada. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it is very popular in Jamaica. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm right there. So... Uh, if we can if we can find a photo somewhere of Ian Fleming at Goldeneye eating something there there's a there's a, um, a perfect headline there which is Ian Fleming enjoying goat well fun piece of trivia that I found out from last week was um India's biggest ever goat was called James Bond <laughs> <laughs> really? yeah well, that's splendid so things you learn on the internet and it must be true yes <laughs> I'm not sure. Even if, even if, um, when when Fleming was married, I think maybe he was served goat curry. Uh, I'm not 100 yeah, well, sure about that. that. That cook Violet Cummings, who was a gold knight, used to make Ian Fleming all the local delicacies: saltfish and ackee and goat curry. And you know, he was he was very keen on it. He enjoyed the local food. In fact, if you look at the books, one of the things Fleming does is he's a complete internationalist. When he goes somewhere, he eats the local food. He doesn't sort of he's not a sort of uh, you know uh, insular Englishman. He's 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 go, going out there enjoying the local cuisine. Is he peeing chips? I had a wonderful lunch the other day in White. Suggest- gentleman's club in st james's which is the secret service club and it was like going back in time it still doesn't allow women members and the dining room was something completely out of blades and it was a fantastic dining experience uh, overlooking st james's down the road from boodle's gentleman's club where ian fleming was a member where he bumped into david niven during the war and it's so there are places where you can eat good old english food still and as fleming said that was the best food in the world when cooked well he kept the British end up in London. What, what you were saying about uh, Fleming being an internationalist, uh, I, I don't know if this influenced me or, or not, because n- neither of my parents was was born in the UK. So uh, I've got a kind of uh, rather a, a kind of colonial um, well parentage. Uh, but the, one of the things that struck me about the books was that wherever Bond went, he would just do what the locals did and uh, I, I've, yes. I've always I've always adopted that and, I, and I, I don't know if it's the Bond influence or my my parents influencing me or a bit of both I think it's human nature sometimes you can be quite insular and and keep to your own or you can explore and I think that's the fun of James Bond both the books and the films they're quite outward looking and they delve into foreign cultures and ideas uh, somewhat you know and I think the books were ahead of their time. I'm surprised a lot of the time when when people visit us and uh, they take their kids to McDonald's and it's like, oh, don't get me started, David. Yeah, don't get well, me started. I've lived in I've I've lived in the states for like 13 years now, and whenever I go overseas, and by that I mean like not Europe and not the Americas, um, and with Americans, yeah, it's like uh, I need to stop at the McDonald's in case I don't find anything I want to eat. It's like. <laughs> Every time. This is Brits. Well, of course, in Live and Let Die, Ian Fleming has James Bond eat hamburger and chips in the beginning, but he doesn't describe it like that. He says flat beef, minced beef patties and French fried potatoes because we didn't have a we didn't have a term for it, I think, then. So it's interesting. So Bond has hamburger right. and chips. Yeah, and but then Lysa just tells him it's, uh, it's burgers and fries. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly, you know. So, you know, if it's good enough for James Bond, Ian Fleming, I'm pretty sure Ian Fleming would have Bond have a McDonald's in the early 70s when it was still exotic. 
I think it'd go to a Wimpy's because yeah, oh yes, they have a China yeah. plate. <laughs> Burger King bought Wimpy and kept it alive, and I don't, I don't know what's happened to them. You'd see them occasionally. I mean, I haven't been to. It's not my favourite food, but I, I do. I'm amused that they still actually exist. There's a Wimpy near Wembley Stadium, so lots of people come out of Wembley Stadium. Well, the novelty to anybody who doesn't know is like they serve you your burger on a plate, like you know, completely against the fast food industry uh, normal. Enjoy a good digression, at least. Anyway, it was good fun as usual. <laughs> I learned a lot. I'll uh, I'll store it away. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, thank you for running the gauntlet of uh, of banks and businesses and burgers, guys. I appreciate yeah. you coming along today. And even if that's all that remains of this recording, that's a really good outro. I'm very happy with making up on the fly. Good to meet you, Paul. Great to meet you too. And I'm uh, let's, let's be on a podcast where I've got more to contribute next time. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, re- I really appreciate um, learning from you, the benefit of your knowledge and experience. And and thank you everyone for coming along this ride with me and we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. See you next week. Okay. Okay. Thank sure. you. Thanks very much, James, Bill, AJ and David. We'll speak to you soon. She wants to be your James Bond. She wants to be your James Bond. Well, it's not for a price and it's not to be nice. She wants to be your James Bond. She wants to be your James Bond She wants to be your James Bond She might stand in your way But still she'll save the day